Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Sloppy Lab. Uh, I'm JT Russell, and uh, with me tonight is the man who's always three minutes early to his 35 o'clock appointments. Uh, that's Quick Draw 3457. <laughs> Hello, good Quick Draw. How JT. are you? Uh, I'm good. I am back from uh, an extremely long Keyforge vacation. Believe it or not, I haven't played Keyforge in three days, which is probably close to a record for any Keyforge player. Uh, so I'm I'm itching to play. It's been a, it's just been too long. You guys have probably never taken three days off, right? Well, well, I, I will see. I don't know who else we have in the lab tonight. Uh, we have a special guest. Maybe they've uh, been on a hiatus or not. We do. So we have Murph in the house tonight to help us talk about uh, what else but Kagi and adaptive and probably dark tidings. Murph, how are you tonight? I am doing very well. Thank you two for having me on. Um, on the on keyboard hiatuses, yes, actually, this past weekend I was on a four five day five uh-huh. day keyforge hiatus so i mean i had no i had to like sneak i couldn't play any keyforge i had to sneak into the kagi server to like tell people to get their games in mm-hmm. and sort of finish out the league but more or less on a keyforge hiatus. and i thought i had a, a world record here and you just like already beat me yeah i'm sorry i mean some people were i mean ffg i think has the must have the longest keyforge hiatus right uh it's still too soon <laughs> sorry <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Well, I mean, this is the theme, I guess. I uh, I am also recently back from a vacation. You all remember my uh, I don't know setup last week, probably. Uh, but uh, I had to check my sheet where I track games, and there's a jump from 7:28 to 8:6 where there were no games recorded on my sheet. So yeah, uh, that's the summer. Oofa But you did not miss. The I, show. Thought, I thought those were all just losses. <laughs> they might have been. You just stopped recording for a week couldn't figure out how to win again um so this is episode 51 which if we have done one a week which has been roughly we are approaching a year and jt despite you talking about your your vacation and and your setup last week with st russell you haven't missed a show in a whole year haven't missed a show and i was i was i well i gotta make gotta make the next one right that would be be (laughs) a big shame start the count yeah made it to 50 though made it to 50 though before swapping out the hot seat, I guess. Yes, so almost fifty, forty-nine. It is. Uh, it's. A, it's a very impressive run. Yeah, I think uh, both of you should be very proud. Specifically, JT. Especially JT. Yeah, I. I mean, I am just along for the ride mostly. Last week was the first time in probably like forty-seven weeks that I have actually done anything technical with regards to this show. So, <laughs> um, yeah. The trap is you you do the setup and then and then everybody looks at their shoes <laughs> when it comes time to learn how to do the things. And I am so you got to go on a vacation. I, I am not learning. afraid to admit that that I am just going to look away. In fact, I was very close this evening to saying, "Hey, JT, are you? If you're busy like getting other stuff ready, I'll run the show tonight." And I was like, "No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm not hiding from that. It's uh, it's too much pressure for me." I I don't I don't uh, blame you at all. In fact, I would think less of you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be this. It wouldn't be a sloppy lab work show without without that, right? That's true. Well, this is going to be a fun conversation. Uh, we are fresh off the U.S. Nationals, so naturally, we're talking about uh, adapt. Talking <laughs> <laughs> about the format that they should have played last weekend. That's right. Swiss adaptive. Best of one. <laughs> Swiss adaptive. Best of three. Oof. The only way to make that. No, best make of the one. 
making them longer. But uh, in seriousness, though, congrats to the folks who placed well. It was cool to see some of the decks that showed up and see the evolving woe impact, I suppose, uh, with another data put in the books. Um, we'll see how it impacts the Kagi League next season, too, I suppose. That'll be interesting. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, sort of how Top Cut is going to roll out and, like, sort of the timeline on that, and then sort of around, like, you know, having a little bit of break in between, a lot of people settle in back to school and all that kind of stuff. Well, um, you know, I think we'll probably be looking at around, starting around a little bit after Europe and beyond starts getting retail and their pledges. Yeah. So hopefully uh, the accessibility of WoW will be in such a state where, you know, I think it's uncomfortable to let into the league. Yeah, I was wondering about that with yeah. like when Europe and the rest of the world was going to get it and if it was going to be legal in Kagi 9.0. Um, so I guess it probably depends on when it finally arrives and when we kick it back up, when you kick it back up for next season. Yeah, it might not be legal to Kagi 9.3, mm. but we'll see. Okay. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Well, um, we have a lot of data to get through tonight because we, we have you on this week, Murph, because we want to look at a lot of the data that you've gathered over the last two Kagi seasons and um, largely about uh, what sets have been played, uh, what the results have been, 2-0 or 2-1, the SAS of the decks involved. And so um, data is getting a little bit better after two seasons. We have almost 150 games recorded, so we can try to take some data from that uh, and try to see if there's any trends, any specific sets that are better, any um, anything noteworthy to talk about with regards to the SAS values of decks being played and decks that are winning, things like that. And uh, you guys have both put together a lot of uh, very beautiful charts uh, through sheets here that we're going to look through and uh, maybe answer some questions from the chat if there's any uh, specific information and data you're looking for. Uh, but this is going to be fun. It's it's very interesting to dig into this data about adaptive and kind of see what trends there are, what people are playing, and, and what people uh, enjoy doing with this format. Absolutely. And I know um, I'll sort of address it at the top of the show because I know there was some questions about it in the Kagi Discord. Um, sort of some, you know, not necessarily player-specific data analysis, but maybe player group data analysis specific um, data analysis and um i did refrain from doing that i think um you know one of the things that i i really want to respect data privacy here and you know i obviously i have to come into contact as a to to handle the data um and input it and stuff like that but i think because i'm also a player i it feels it would feel it feels a little wrong for me personally to sort of take that look at some of the most competitive players in the league and analyze their behaviors um sort of like with nameplates attached so i think um i just i refrain from doing that just on my own sort of moral and ethical feelings about that specifically so we're not going to be covering any sort of like top cut player specific data or anything around that because so i think that sort of gets in the, in the too sort of too much it's too much specificity. So, so wait a minute. How about. did you know that I only play Dark Tidings then? Um, because you shouted it to the heavens. That's so. correct. You are right. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so we're not going to get into how the Polish and French players only play AOA <laughs> and the Korean players enjoy Dark Tidings. <laughs> That's unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. Okay. Yeah. We'll leave that. We'll leave that aside then. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, well, tell if, us a little if, more. If than people want to, if people want to go and ask specific players, and, you know look at the publicly available information about play that they're more than welcome to. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, tell us a little bit more about 
I mean, brief, maybe briefly about the league structure as it, as it relates to the data and also kind of the, the way that it was collected, uh, if you would, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Kagi League uh, has always been sort of has, has always been broken up into pods. The pods are more or less time zone region based. So I try and match people based on time zone, but they're, they're, it's a the league has two phases, a pod phase, a top cut phase. In the pod phase, people are split into pods of six to eight players typically, and then they have a designated time span to play one Archon Adaptive best of three match against each player in their pod in a round robin format. So you have to play against each player in your pod once. At the end of the pod phase, the top players from each pod will then face off. They'll move on to the top cut, and they and they move on to a single elimination playoff bracket where they compete to be Kagi champion, which we have won ourselves on this on this very podcast. But that's sort of how the league is structured. Pods of six to eight players, they play a round robin, and it's one adaptive best of three match for each player. So at the end of every match, the winner is to report who wins and who losses. So me as a tournament organizer, I can go into the pod sheet and say who won, who lost, all that kind of stuff. In Kagi 7, I sort of, you know, I took it as a as a bit of an effort to go and start collecting some data because one of the things that adaptive as a format has been missing has been any real sort of hard data around it. There's been lots of discussion, you know, there's been articles written about it. This, you know, I have come on this very podcast and we've had discussion about DT and adaptive and adaptive as a format and some ideas surrounding it. But again, all of those, it's all been anecdotal more or less and theory crafting, but what we didn't have was hard numbers, which now we have. And so what so what I what I did was in the match report sheet, the winner had the option. Every every single piece of data collection was optional. You either could that you could you could report it or you could choose not to. Um, the sheet asked, you know, what pod were you in? The names of the two players, and then it basically asked you, did you win? Was with the game end in a two o two one or four footer concession? And then past that, the so the form would branch into two different pieces. So if you selected 2-0 or 4-footer concession, basically it was, I guess, three sections. If you clicked 4-footer concession, the form ended. If you clicked 2-0, it went into the 2-0 section. So you reported the set of the of the winner's deck, the SAS of the winner's deck, and then vice versa for the loser's deck. And the winner in the speci- in the winner's deck is the is the one who you know won the first game. And they won the second with the other person's deck, so it was the it's the person who won is the perspective we're taking on ownership, not the deck's perspective, which is important to note because sometimes that can get confusing. We're talking about adaptive. Um, in the two one section, that branches even further. That gives you options to um, report how many chains were bid in game three. I think that was the one piece of data collection that was um, that was mandatory. Um, so basically, how many chains were bid. And then it asks you the exact same questions on SAS and set. And then it asks you another question. It asks you two more questions. It asks you, did the winner of the of the match play their own deck? And then did the winner of the match match sorry, did the winner's deck win the previous two games? Which was sort of a you know, maybe a subtle, maybe not so subtle way, but trying to ask some pointed questions to try and tease out. Did the player who was chained in the third game win? Did they win? Did they do that with their own deck, or did they do that do that with their opponent's deck? So some ways there to try and tease out a little bit more information without getting sort of too specific and a little bit more general for for player for player reports. So I think the way to sum um, it up, I would say, is we're looking at um, 
whether or not it was a 2.0 or a 2.1. We're looking at what sets were involved, we're looking at the SAS value of the DEX, and we're looking at the chain's bid. This is really like the the high level points that we're looking at yeah, that's, in this conversation. That's some meat and potatoes yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so there is um, quite a lot. So I think for season seven, when you first got it, there was, uh, what does it look like? Like 56 games reported, something like that. Um, something around there. And, yeah. I think it was around 20, it was 20 something players in seasons in season seven. So yeah, it sounds about yeah. right. And so for season eight, we've had more players. We have more data this time around. Um, almost a hundred games this season reported. So the data is getting, you know, pretty nice so we can kind of, pull more from it i think last year you guys did this episode um i wasn't able to be there for that but there's a lot of kind of outliers involved and, and things that are skewed and i think we're getting to a point now with 150 games where it's starting to you know settle a little bit and we're able to see some trends hopefully from season to season and uh overall across the two seasons especially yeah i know last season jt and i had talked about it and we sort of didn't really do this sort of in-depth episode and i think much i should actually talk is uh chagrin um, but we didn't really do this sort of episode mostly because of the sort of, you know, that many games last season was kind of, it produced a lot of areas where it was, didn't really feel statistically relevant mm -hmm. for a lot of the data points. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's one other, there's one other kind of point that I want to make sure we, we say before we uh, move on too much. Um, with the league structure, you can bring a different deck each to each match if you want to, right? So that's very, very important when you're talking about things like, you know, the, the meta as it's reflected by set preference or SAS range preference, right? Uh, it's not like folks signed up and then we're stuck with whatever deck they signed up with. Um, uh, there was kind of like a convergence effect that, that could potentially happen or folks could choose to ignore what other folks are bringing. Um, so, that, so that's interesting and very relevant. And maybe I think, you know, lends a little bit to uh, some of the trends, you know, lend some credence maybe to some of the trends that we'll see, or at least, uh, uh, at least <laughs> suggest that folks were willfully ignoring them. <laughs> yeah. One other asterisk yeah, I, I want to bring up here is that um, I think it was around mid-season. I don't remember the exact date. Um, there was a DOK update that updated a lot of the SAS scores. So you, we are going to see. I would not put much stock in the SAS value of decks being chosen because you're going to have some that were before that update, some that were after. But I do think what's still relevant is the some of the SAS uh, discrepancies between the two decks. I think that's still pretty uniform, where like, you know, a lot of decks, as people might already know, like their decks went down like five, seven, maybe even 10 points. Uh, and so a lot of things went down. And so while we might see a lower overall SAS in the second half of the season, we don't have a way to kind of split that out. But uh, I do think that the SAS difference in games is going to be roughly the same. It's not going to be perfect, but if there was like a, a pre-SAS update, if they were like seven point difference or a 10 point difference post-SAS update, they're probably going to be pretty close to that. So I do think that there's still some value in the data we have if you look specifically at the, uh, the SAS differences in the decks played. I think it's also relevant, and I know, I mean, I, I sort of mentioned this in another video that I did, but it's also important to use the data people were looking at at the time. Well, obviously, po at, at post update, the update was July 16th, so sort of like three quarters of the way through the season. Um, so definitely, it's it's important to look there. But when people were making decisions for majority of the league, and like people already had decks they sort of wanted to play, probably by the last two weeks, um, I think you know that SAS is still very relevant for the decisions people were making at the time in that environment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And I mean, whether or not you believe, well, I, you know, folks may want to stick with the decks that they were playing with, but whether or not you believe uh, that SAS is a great reflection of your deck strength or not, I, I think it's hard to argue that it doesn't impact the the psychology of players selecting decks. And if you if you believe that there is a, you know, a sweet spot range uh, for deck viability in adaptive, you know, to give you a chance for a 2-0 or, or even just to have fun games, you know, that's going to maybe weigh into your decision making. Um, you know, whether you want to admit it or not, I'll admit that it probably does does for me on some level. You know, maybe maybe more than I'd like to admit, but yeah, yeah, I, I think it I certainly I think it certainly plays an impact for me. I mean, I always have in my head a range in which I typically assess range to try and sort of look at adaptive decks in beyond sort of like beyond my own personal play experience, but certainly have an, I have an idea that I recommend adaptive decks to be in. I'd I'd like to think that I have a. A range of deck strength in mind that roughly correlates to SAS range, and, and that's why I convinced myself that I'm not not totally uh, influenced by the big number. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's more where I am. I'm I'm looking more at deck strength and something that I feel like I can beat in a game two, but also something that I can win with in a game one. Um, but you're right; that often does correlate to SAS, not always. But um, for these reasons, you know, because of the subjectivity of SAS, and you know, you could have a 75 SAS deck that is just not a very good deck. And you bring it for that specific reason, because people might think it's a little bit better than it is. But for these reasons specifically, I'm very interested in the cross-set data that we might have available to us, um, because I do think that it's kind of interesting to, to see like what sets people are bringing and whether or not they are succeeding with or against those sets. And maybe we we might see some trends. And this isn't like a this is not a teaser because I just generally don't know. But maybe we'll see that some sets are not doing very well versus other specific sets. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm really interested in seeing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, let's jump in. I mean, do we want to head right to kind of some set breakdowns or or maybe some higher level stuff? Uh, uh, I'm actually kind of curious. I uh, can pose some of these as questions to you all to get your takes. I know, I know you probably have taken a glance at some of the data, but uh, maybe you can put on your, your hat of innocence and answer from a feigned, feigned state of naivety, right? But... Um, yeah, the first thing that, that I, I was curious about, right, was the split between 2-0 and 2-1 results. Like, how often did games go to, did matches go to three games, right? Uh, I don't know. Did, did you all have all have a guesses guesses on this going in, or uh, we're just kind of like, uh, yeah. No I way. mean, I guess like I've obviously I've been collecting the data. I'm keeping a close eye on it. But when I started going in, when I sort of went into the data collection, I was expecting about a two to one um split for two one games mm-hmm. so i was expecting probably two-thirds of two-thirds of all the games to be two ones i i would have expected well more than half as well i would have been in the same place as you murph but um that's not what we saw here is it it's not we saw a pretty much even split across both seasons so it came out to nearly 50 50 so 77 2 results 75 2 one results and in fact uh in fact in season seven there were almost twice as many two O's as there were two ones, uh, which really surprised so, me. And I was, I was kind of, are you saying that in season that eight and, that has swung the other way? Swung, swung the other way. So season eight, there were 54, two ones, 42, two O's. So there was, there were more matches uh, as a kind of, uh, as a kind of percentage, you're kind of closer to even, but in absolute terms, you're, you're balancing out the season seven numbers to get to, nearly even overall um, but yeah slightly more two o's or two ones excuse me in season eight um, in that case i'm very excited to see yeah. what happens in nine and see if that changes again or see which way it maybe is like yeah the true number because i think um we had um obviously this has been our 
biggest Kagi season ever with 43 players this season. And I know there's a whole bunch of people who are, I'm not going to say new to adaptive, but sort of maybe a little bit new to such an entrenched league like Kagi is. Um, like there's a lot of really dedicated Kagi players. So mm-hmm. I think um, there's a chance that, um, you know, maybe some of that impacted a little bit of the data compared to some of the two O's we saw in Kagi 7.0, which only had, I think, I can't remember exactly how many players had in Kagi 7.0, but it was a lot more of the sort of regular faces. Yeah, I think Kagi 7 had around 25-ish, give or take three, I think, is where we were. Um, so this is pretty significantly higher, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I always I always think, too, I mean, you you get the first game in the books. If the players are are both really, you know, you know, or they're both strong players, kind of roughly even footing, and they've brought decks that are kind of both in the in the two O capable wheelhouse, um, you you might expect a, a, a fairly even split between two O's and two ones uh, overall. Uh, if you kind of if you're kind of thinking that going into that second game, there's roughly roughly even odds, and then it comes down to kind of who's playing better that day. I don't know, uh, but. I uh, I was initially expecting way more two ones than two O's, maybe maybe like you both were, uh, and I don't know, maybe the even split kind of speaks to how well matched a lot of these uh, these players are. I mean, it's certainly a a very strong field. Like, there's no question, it's a very strong field. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think the I was the higher number of two O's might indicate that more people are bringing, you know, like those middling tier decks than we thought because. The prevailing opinion of, of of adaptive was that you are at the advantage if you bring the stronger deck because the theory was that if you choose who goes first in game three you have the advantage but to me seeing more two o's indicates to me that maybe everyone's bringing the big decks but i don't think that's true because i certainly am not i usually target something that i feel like can win or lose many different matches um and so i wonder if we looked at the data on SAS, if we'd be seeing more people bringing stuff in the low 70s or high 60s when, you know, the prevailing thought is like, oh, it's, you know, Adaptive is still favoring people that bring the best Archon deck. And I don't think that's true. And I don't think the data is showing that either. No, I and mean, that's that's kind of a great a great place to jump to. I uh, And I know, Murph, you had, you had considered even kind of changing some of the the rules around who goes first in game three to counteract some of that. I don't know where your thinking is on that still, but uh, to quick draws question, uh, you see a, we see a very pronounced spike in the like 65 to 75 SAS range. Uh, and whether, you know, again, again, whether you, you take that for kind of gospel on deck strength or just consider that folks are, have that sort of range in mind as a, as a benchmark of sorts. Um, that seems to be where folks are homing in. Uh, and I want to say too, I'm just going to refresh myself on the actual numbers here. That uh, while by and large, you know, yeah, 60% of uh, ish of folks in that kind of 66 to 75 range. While while that's the case, uh, the 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 players with the slightly higher decks seem to be winning a little bit more often. Uh, so it's kind of like you want to be in that range, but then maybe be a little bit higher. Um, so I don't know if there's a little bit of that coming through. Um, again, like I don't think the numbers, the size of the data set is really so so large as to kind of get that, like, you know, drill down that deep per, per se. But uh, but it was interesting to see uh, that you see folks winning a little bit more frequently 
with the higher SAS uh, decks within that range, and then it kind of it, it it washes out a little bit. You know, in the in the seventy six to eighty SAS range, you know, you've got a, what fourteen percent of your winners, sixteen percent of the losers. Um, so interesting. So am I looking at this right that we have only about twelve percent of decks were above eighty SAS in the last two seasons? Is that right? I believe that's right. Yeah. So that's that's, right. that's not that much. And you look at like. 71 to 75 SAS is 35% of decks represented, um, which is the highest of any of any range. And 66 to 70 is the next highest at 28%. So like you said, like that 66 to 75 range, we're seeing over half the decks being played at, at that point. And I think that's related to the number of 2-0s we're seeing being a lot higher than we expected. Yep, I completely agree. And I think um, I think it's also interesting too... I, See, one of the things too about uh, adaptive is one of the best, one of the most common advice you get with it is that the best deck to choose is a deck you're very familiar with. And sort of on average, people tend to have more plays on decks that are that usually do a little bit more stuff, which also usually tends to correlate with slightly higher SAS, sort of high 60s, low 70s, um, even mid 70s. Um, And I think just by the nature of you know people playing especially people playing an online league they're usually a little bit more a little slightly more competitively bent or slightly more um, engaged with the game usually decks that are sort of floating in that range are more likely to see more more play and more casual play and more experience with them than you know people playing like 50s yeah we only saw one deck brought that was 55 or below so um and five decks that brought, was uh, uh, you know do you know which one it was or I do. Can you share that without, um, you know? It was a teammate of yours. I, I it, was a, it was it was a match played live on stream against Beehawk. I don't even know who that is. <laughs> I, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> it was. Oh, uh, I have to go. I, the video of it is out. I played Judge, and they played. I could have, I'd have to go look at it. I could check. I could check that if you want. You think Beehawk played a, a deck that was fifty-five? Fifty-four, I think. Wow. Wait, Ooh. did I? I think I watched that match, and I—I I mean, I don't look at DOK during games that I play, or even during games that I watch. I—I I remember you playing Beehawk, and I never would have thought his deck was like fifty-five or below. Me either. That was a shock when I went to the. Uh, let's see. Um, oh, you know what? I didn't have the deck links. I think I was too lazy. Um, they played Four Eyes, Halloran, Palace Tutor. All right, JT's gonna pull that up. Well, I, I talk briefly here. Um, we saw six decks that were 60 or below, which is uh, 60s, you know, not that low. It's pretty low. Uh, but that is far fewer than we saw at 80 and above. We saw in the last two seasons at 81 or above, we saw 36 decks. So um, it is definitely like you talked about, like people want to play decks you're familiar with. And those are generally going to be stronger decks. And so we see very few decks played in the 50s. Um, quite a, a lot, comparatively speaking, played in the 80s, but um, still far fewer than what's in like the mid 60s, to high 60s to low 70s kind of range. So, um, yeah, it's it's all relative, but we are getting better. Um, over you know two seasons now, we're seeing this this trend kind of correlate to like around 70 plus or minus five. Okay, so here's Four Eyes Halloran we're looking at right now. It's an AOA deck. It has zero amber control. I do remember that. Um, it's got some pretty mm-hmm. decent creature control with an unlock gateway, key to disc, 
It's got a uh, poltergeist for some artifact control. Um, what else did it have with it? Brobnar, Dis, and what was the third house, JT? Yeah, Logos. We've got the Fila. There's Harlan, Harland, Mindlock, Jargoggle, Sutterkin, Rocket Boots, Bouncing Death Quark, uh, Lapwork Poke, Finger Trap. Yeah, I remember this game. Uh, I remember this game well uh, seeing the list. Uh, I think he, w- he had high hopes of the Binding Irons uh, punishing you for a high bid on Judge. Is that right? Yeah, I played the Cruiser's here, Judge. Yep. Uh, yeah, so so cool. Very cool to see uh, and very, very saucy bringing the zero, hard zero on Amber Control. No cards listed under uh, that stat on DOK. It's not just rounding. There's a zero. That was also a really fun match because the third game, I took Judge for 10 chains and it really the game was close like it, i think that's one of the, the games where i've really felt the most where chains actually evened out the game mm. yeah it, and i think if one of the binding irons had come in the top half of the deck instead of the bottom half of the deck i think it very well could have gone i remember early. thinking that too because um especially if you got both of them if they both came early that's putting you down yeah. to a three card hand if i'm not mistaken yeah and that's just like yeah. really hard to deal with it is, and yeah. And it's, 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 a, it's a hard thing, too, because there was definitely sort of on the last couple of turns, there definitely was more outs than just one, I think, to play towards. Um, mm-hmm. But with that, with that many cards down, like an extra six chains on top of the 10 that I had, it would have been brutal. Yeah. Well, yeah, 16 would be would be rough. And I want to say, too, I want to say, too, you you took a couple gambles on uh, on the book of, of LAQ, Book of Lek. That, I took that... one gamble. Okay. Yeah, oh, I took one, one gamble earlier on the game, which was... Um, it was it was definitely a little questionable, but a little, off, a so. yeah, <laughs> all right, questionable. Yeah, question favors the bold, as they yeah. say. There you go. Okay, cool. Right on. But yeah, interesting. Uh, super interesting to see. Uh, we have man, we've got lots of outliers represented in this sloppy lab work crew. We've got Mister Outlier himself, Quick Draw, and uh, and Beehawk now as well, bringing up uh, bringing up one of the edges of our charts. So yeah, that is absolutely true. Yeah, they are. They're both. All your team is ruining the data, or we're making it real. That, uh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> we love those outlier stats. I mean, uh, not tonight. A big fan of the low A decks as well. So, uh, not to be outdone. Although Beehawk's zero there is a statement. That is a statement. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So, um, yep. I am personally not a fan of zero A and adaptive. I don't think it adds enough. Like that stat alone. I don't. I don't think that stat is like. I think it jumps out at you. And I think maybe you think like, ooh, that's like, you know, can they play well against zero A um, or play well with zero A? Either way, I, I don't think it is enough of a skill te- skill testing factor by itself. Um, and it's not really something that I consider whenever I play an adaptive deck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, uh, it'd be interesting to see how, I mean, we'd have to have the actual decks to uh, deck links to pull some of the other stats forward. Uh, but if there are trends on deck selection on some of yeah. those, but yeah, we're getting we're getting into real heavy de- data collection territory mm-hmm. here. So <laughs> we got yeah, I don't. It's it one of the things where I don't want to make. Um, I don't want to like put like. You know, at the end of the day, like I don't want to make people feel like violated by the data collection for the mm-hmm. during the match report or make it too tedious where like they don't want they don't want to like you know do it seven times during a season. Yeah. Sure, sure. And we've got to be consistent now as uh-huh. well, moving forward in future seasons. We want to make sure we're adding to this data, not collecting new things and, you know, creating new data points. We want to try to make this data as consistent as we can and as reliable as we can by kind of increasing the total sample size. So, um, 
what uh what is there anything else about SAS that stuck out to you guys? Like let's talk about maybe SAS Delta. I thought that was a pretty interesting thing to look at. That's where I was gonna go next. What what sticks yeah, out totally. to you, Murph, with the SAS Delta data? Uh one of the things that I was rather surprising on the I was surprised at how close the average and median SAS deltas are for both two woes and two ones. Mm-hmm. Like the mm-hmm. fact that it's pretty much the same no matter which one you're in, I totally would have thought the average SAS delta for a 2 1 would have been way higher just because like having actual more clear favorites there. And and just for just so uh, for the folks who are who only have ears on the show, we've got uh, an average SAS delta of 7.0 and a median value of, two, of 6.0 uh, among the 2 0 results. So a difference in SAS of seven of seven on average and median of six, which is I mean not 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 a ton, but the, almost the exact same thing on the two one side. So on the two one side, right, you've got an average of six point five and a median of six in the in the difference in SAS value. So what this is showing us, really? if, if, to, to make sure I understand it, and what this looks like is that the SAS delta does not determine whether or not we have a two o or a two one. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Well, yes, actually. Yeah. And I, I was, I was about to say, cause I know there is one extreme outlier in, um, SAS on a two and a two SAS Delta. Thanks to you, quick draw. Um, but that actually doesn't even matter because our median SAS Delta is still in line. So like that, uh, that extreme outlier is not, it's not, not going to affect your median value. Yeah. So that's probably why we're a whole SAS point higher on the average, but it, it's not going to affect the median. So the fact that the median is a six, on both 2-1 and 2-0, I think is exactly right, Quick Draw. I don't think SAS deltas are the biggest reason why we're seeing 2-1 games. Yeah, that's very interesting yeah. and unexpected. Well, well I mean, and, and maybe maybe a takeaway from that is that folks are maybe targeting decks that are wildly underrated or overrated in the hopes that folks are going to be looking at uh, folks are gonna be looking at DOK when it comes to bidding and letting that uh, influence their judgment. I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, I'm less that's... inclined to believe that one, JT. I appreciate the theory, but I am yeah. less inclined to believe that one. Well, I know Plus... it's not the case for our extreme outlier. That's that's that's, that's true. That's true. Because yeah. I think one thing. I mean, when I play Kagi, when I play adaptive matches, I don't look at DOK ever. Mm-hmm. Like I just go by the deck list because I know look as I know Quitros mentioned before on many episodes as well. Like looking at the looking at DOK and like seeing the arc stats and like not seeing the actual cards can really really skew how you view a deck. And like miss the things that are actually important, so I really try to avoid that. But I also know I and I I know that's true for a number of people. Some people absolutely use SAS during an adaptive match, like all power to them. Use all tools available to you. Um, but I think sort of nominally, I think it's less of a intentional impact. Yeah, I to me, yeah, the SAS score and all the arc stats are just a distraction. Um, during a game, I, I'd rather look at the cards and what I'm what I'm looking out for, what they're trying to do. So to me, yeah, I don't look at it either. Um, you guys mentioned the the outlier game. Um, we can just talk about it briefly. It was a 21-point SAS difference. Um, I ended up with a 2-0 win, and it was just a straight-up bad draw in the first game for my opponent. Um, so that kind of stuff happens. Like, it was an outlier. It, it is slightly affecting the data. It's one out of 150 games that we have. Um, I don't think it was, you know, I don't think it's super meaningful. It doesn't say anything specific about my deck or their deck. It was just, it was just an outlier. I mean, it is what it is. Yep. 
No, I, I completely agree. Now, like I said, even even if it even if it was affecting our average a fair bit, because it's like twenty one instead of like maybe like a seven, um, the median is not affected at all. Yeah. So it just it I think it really it really does hammer home that point that it's not the reason we're seeing a third game in an adaptive match. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and this kind of I mean points to the limitation of any ranking or rating system that's going to boil down a deck something like a deck a keyboard deck to one number. I mean, it's a great way to organize large numbers of decks. It's really hard to use one to get one number that's going to help you predict the outcome between two decks, right? Two specific decks. Yeah. Um, and so I, I know I, we, I see this a lot playing, you know, the sloppy sex set games. You know, you very often see the matches matches uh, go in favor of the un, of the lower rated deck, and it's and it's really because it comes down to how these specific decks match up, as opposed to you know how they stand up to a, a larger pool of decks um yeah yeah totally uh is there any other data that sticks out to you guys as far as the saz deltas go um looks like we had uh just the one outlier game we mentioned that was uh the overall saz delta was actually sorry there were three games where a saz delta was at least 21 or higher um one of them resulted in a 2-0 the other ones resulted in two ones um 45 percent 46 percent of games uh were a zero to five saz delta so almost half were like two pretty evenly matched decks which uh is kind of in line with what we looked at with like most people bringing something in the 66 to 75 range kind of lines up right there um six to ten was the second most common just as we could probably expect that was about 35 percent so just in the zero to ten saz delta range we're looking at about 80 or 81 percent of the games played so vast majority played within 10 sas points mm-hmm. which is which is super cool and i don't know it speaks to maybe the the health of the format or the the strength of the games that you're or the quality of the games that you're seeing hopefully uh at least in theory right uh one of the worries one of the worries about adaptive right is you play two meaningless games and then go to a third game where you bid but i mean if you're if you're often seeing decks that are around the same power level like that's not the case, which is good, which is good to see. I think it would be more worrisome message about the format in general if this chart was reversed and we uh, we saw lots of disparity, you know, lots of 80 to 80, 80 plus decks, lots of uh, 60 and below decks uh, smashing against each other for, for two games to, to play a, a third with lots of chains. Um, so it's cool. Yeah, I think we'll have to, I'm really interested in looking at this over time because I really feel like this is different than what adaptive used to be. And I wish we had data from the early Kagi seasons because this is just, it's not really what people, you know, think when they think about adaptive. Like like we've said before, like the, the prevailing theory was that adaptive favors the strongest deck. And the data that we have from these two seasons is not indicating that people are believing in that theory, um, at least not like they used to. And... I really I feel that in my matches as well. Like I feel like every match I play, I am capable of winning the first or the second game. Uh, so, you know, it's it's interesting that um, that's kind of normalizing, and, and I'm really curious to see how this changes over time as well. I personally kind of lived that uh, that shift in thinking. You know, my go-to deck for adaptive for a long time was Combo Grieve. The he who slices the gully, which is it has its it has its intricacies, but it's it's a very typical kind of coda heist rush e steely deck, right? So my 
my plan with that deck, with bringing that deck to adaptive, was to win very convincingly in the first, lose, maybe even concede the second, and then go into uh, go into game three, having already played my deck in a lot of different uh, at a lot of different chain levels, and just using that knowledge to gain an advantage in the third game. Um, and I mean, it worked. It worked fine. wasn't the most fun way to play adaptive, I think. Yeah. But I think uh, I've kind of also shifted my thinking in like uh, what's giving me the best best chance overall. Because I don't know uh, the high the high chained games do tend to feel like. So I mean, maybe maybe drifting far afield here, but I do feel like uh, the higher you go in chains, the while you can normalize or while you can find a breaking point where the match outcome is 50-50, the the uh, not all 50-50 games are the same, right? Some are contests of skills, some are contests of luck. Um, you've normalized deck, but now you still have to determine how much the match is going to be determined by skill and determined by luck. Uh, and I think super high chain counts push that pendulum toward the luck side versus the skill side. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that was um, the criticism too of adaptive was that the third game is often just determined by luck. If both players are are bidding at an optimal point, it's going to come down to draws. And I guess there is some like some credibility to that theory. Uh, but Moose Man Dude in the chat, who is now a two-time top cut Kagi player, um, also brings up the point that uh, the presence of the 2-0 tiebreaker may push players to want to bring decks more in the uh, high 60s, low 70s. That is absolutely true. Um, but I personally think players are also realizing what you talked about, JT, is that when you're at a higher chain point, there is more variance in games. And myself personally, um, as you know, a competitive adaptive player, I don't want that variance involved. I would rather have a match decided in two games through good play in those two games. So I do think there's a few factors here. One, as Moose Man Dude mentions, is definitely that tiebreaker. But I think that's smaller compared to, I think players are, are learning and realizing how much variance there can be in a third game. And I think players just prefer to avoid that. That's exactly right. The shift in thinking from, ooh, there's, there's a slight advantage to be gained by going first in game three to actually I'd, I'd prefer the game to be decided before we get to that point. And if we have to go there, let's do it with as few chains as possible because uh because yeah otherwise we're shifting we're shifting that balance of determination towards luck versus skill and that's not preferable if you're uh if you believe that you can carry the day with skill <laughs> i guess if you think you're outclassed go with a high variance swingy deck i don't know <laughs> uh, that's that's the thing you could do you could bring uh, woe then right yeah. you, oh oh <laughs> is that this episode i don't know we're gonna we can talk about that later um it is something that i i I'm interested in the question, the theory at the end of the show about what Woe is going to do to this data, um, but mm -hmm. we can table that discussion for now. The next, the next kind of thing that maybe is relevant to look at, uh, to your point, quick draw, is just kind of how the the bids impacted uh, outcomes, and and also just kind of how frequently we saw saw different bid ranges. Because I I was very curious, like, okay, like how much are people bidding when they get to game three? Like, how high are they going typically? And then a question from some of the folks on the Sanctimonious Time Shapers Discord, you know, like, do you typically see the folks who win the bidding, who take chains in game three, walking away with the win or uh, or getting buried under those chains? Uh, and so this, this is really interesting to me. Uh, we saw, we broke the bid ranges into, you know, buckets of three. Uh, we did break it out individually as well. 
but I guess maybe so. Maybe starting there, you know, uh, we we see things sort of sort of taper off after after eight or nine chains. Most common chain bids are in the uh, four to six range. So six, a bid of six with the most common uh, was the most common bid at the full twenty one percent of games getting uh, six bids in the chains with another ten percent each at four and five. So. Uh, Almost half, almost half of the games that go to game three end up with a bid between four and six. If you include zero to three, then you're at about half, about half the games at six or below. So that's interesting. Yeah, I, I think six or seven is like right where most people stop because of the difference in like going from six to seven. And in particular, which player has the option of going first is, I think, I don't think we have that data, but they're more likely to go to seven than the person who's probably going to go second um i do wish that and i'm going to probably try to dig into this at a later point um i think that the count of the of the uh chains is very important to see zero and one because zero and one to me are the bids where one player thinks a deck is favored and the other player might think the other deck is favored especially the zeros because um my game that was the outlier we talked about with the 21 sas differential we both agreed that if um, my opponent had come away with game two, then he it was his deck that had the higher Saz. He would have had to bid... Um, I would have had to bid zero on my deck, and he would have passed on it. And I would have totally agreed with him, and I think he would have been favored. So like, I think if we look at the... Um, I don't know how many there were that had zero chains bid in game three, or even one chain, I think. Those are interesting to separate out from the two and three chains. Um, if we looked at this, so that's something that I'm going to look at. But um, like you had mentioned, like around six is, I think, pretty common. We saw that bid a lot with a lot of these games went to game three. Yeah. So uh, a total of four games saw a bid of zero and two, a bit of one. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I know of one instance, I th- one instance in particular of a game in which you know it was agreed upon by me i was spectating it it was agreed upon by me and both players um where the players were allowed bid on the deck that did not win the previous two games interesting so that it, there is a case of that and i believe that was in kagi 7.0 um hmm. but that is also a dead point in there hmm. wow interesting How- I, it feels like it's a thing that ought to be allowed but uh it, it should be allowed i think it was i think it was simply an oversight i understand like railroading it for maybe accessibility reasons um but I I just think it's a silly it's such a silly restriction that's unnecessary. Do you remember how high that uh, bid should, went? Um I think it was it was only two or three chains. Okay. Pretty small then. Interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Um I don't I mean I actually I think there's two cases. There's two cases actually. Because one of the ones where's one of the ones was um the player they just they had different decks they bid on. <laughs> One person took their own deck, and the other person took their deck, and they said, "All right, let's run it back." Yeah, because they were they were confident that their well, one player was like, "You know, I, I my deck can win this matchup, even though it didn't win the last two games." I think that's that's a legit approach as well, as long as each person chose the deck that they brought, because that's the same thing as saying like, "I won, uh, my deck won the first two games. I have to bid zero on my deck." The opponent uh, passing and not yeah. bidding. It's the same thing essentially. It's a pass on zero. For it's sure. a pass on zero. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, cool. And uh, I guess the la- the last thing I want to point out there is uh, we also looked at how often the chain, uh, the person playing the chain deck won that third game. Um, and it turned out 
uh, that more often than not, the the change player was losing that third game, which was which is interesting. Losing it. It was close. Really? Was losing it. Yeah. So it was close. Uh, at zero to three chains, the chained player was winning a quarter of the time. Hmm. Uh, to 50, at uh, four to six chains, forty-seven percent, forty-seven percent in the actually in the four chains to nine nine chains reigns. It was pretty even. Uh, 47, 48% of the time. And then in the 10 plus uh, uh, chains range, uh, there are, again, are not, not a ton. There was only 10, 10 games in the uh, 10 plus chains range. And uh, the chained player only won three of those. And then there was one game at 13. Is that correct? There was one game at 13 plus. So yeah, so there, so there was nine at 10 to 12. There was one at 13 plus. Um, and in and uh, among those ten games, the chain player won three of them. And so, what does that tell and you guys? It was not in the third. Th- is this just that people are overestimating how much better a deck is, or do you guys think this is the variance involved? Uh, at thirteen plus with one sample, inconclusive. Um, at ten to twelve, I think that is variance taking a gamble on variance. I think my game with Judge versus Beehawk's deck that was in the ten to twelve range. Mm-hmm. And that you said earlier that and game could have gone differently if they had just drawn some binding iron binding irons earlier, right? If I drew differently in that game, or Beehawk drew differently in the game, it was like that game was like genuinely neck and neck. Mm-hmm. So how many how many yeah. more uh, data points do you need to see in the ten to twelve range before you say like, okay, yeah, that thirty three percent win rate for the chain deck is, you know, is there is there a point where you could say like, yeah, that's probably like that means something different than just simple variance? Um, no. I think that's I think that's just how I view. If you're taking a ten chains on a deck, that's just how I think I think the matchup. You're evaluating the matchup. Mm-hmm. But if it personally over like say like ten thousand games, if we're still seeing the chain deck losing sixty seven percent of those, that means something, you know, like because when we talk about that's variance, enough, like yeah. one of the sides has to win, and if the chain mm-hmm. bid, if if we all agree or all the players agree that the chain bid at ten was correct and that's makes it an even matchup we should see that approaching 50 percent. yeah i think so i guess the statistically statistically relevant sample size i think is probably somewhere around 20 to 30 okay so we are a couple seasons away probably probably i think but i think 20 to 30 matches i think is sort of enough sample size you can say okay you know like you there's a couple bad ones in there there's a couple like you know two good ones and i you know i think we start getting towards normalizing the curve of uh, happenstances. Mm-hmm. And so for the four to six and the seven to nine range of, of chain bids, we see win percentages right around 47, 47 and a half percent. I would call that within the margin of error. Those are I would yeah, as well. 32 yeah. and 21 games respectively in those bid ranges. Yeah. And especially like if, I don't know what it would be, if you take the game three bid range to be four to nine, I'd be curious... Uh, like that's at that point that's like that's like the large majority of your wait that's twenty eight plus forty two, so sixty percent of your games are between the four to nine range. Seventy percent. Both those having a seventy percent. Yeah, you're right. Seventy percent. Um, and with those having pretty much fifty ish range, I think that's I think that's at least proof that within that range it's equalizing a matchup quite well. Mm-hmm. But again, like if we see over the next few seasons, this is still like around 47%. I think eventually we have to say like you are slightly, uh, slightly favored if you're not taking the chains. Yep. 
sort of a sort of the whole thing of like you know if you're on if you're on black you've got a you've got like a 49 48% chance instead of the you know 51% chance you get over on white on on black on uh, white yeah so i think that's certainly eventually i think we will start seeing um trends like that and hopefully we live in we live in a in an age where kagi has run enough seasons we can get that many relevant yeah. uh, data points aiming for st- statistical significance here um and I, maybe you know if enough people watch or listen to the show they might say like well next season i'm gonna bid one chain less than i think and absolutely maybe we'll move closer to 50 percent then I, I mean i will also be very clear when i bid i'm always like it's always because yeah i have a i have a number in my head when i go into chain bidding i've got a number ahead maybe it's like eight maybe it's six maybe it's seven and i say you know what i get to, i get to the number and i say you know what can i do one more you know, like, can I, can I do one more, one more chain? And then like, you know, it's really easy to talk yourself into maybe just one more. So that's also something where probably when, you know, at that point, you just need to be disciplined. I think for me personally, I, if I, I usually have a number in my head to start of bidding. And once I reach that, if I bid that number that I like projected, I'm just thinking in my head, like, please take this from me, bid higher. Cause I, I generally don't want the chains at that point i'm like i don't want to regret that bid i want them to pay for that bid is is what i'm thinking yeah i guess i never i never get i never if i if i'm going my bid range is like when do i feel comfortable where do i feel comfortable taking this deck and thinking i can like reasonably win with it that's right that's right to get it where go try and peg the number at um you you approach that number and then decide whether or not you want to gamble once you reach it and how how saucy your opponent's treating you? <laughs> exactly. If the opponent really wants that deck, hey, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go two more. Do you guys? Okay, this is a sidebar, but do you guys consider how quickly your opponent bids in your in your bidding? Like, if you're like, oh, my max is seven, and you go like straight to four, and then they immediately go five, and then they immediately go seven, are you thinking like, oh man, like they they were like really quick with that? Maybe I underestimated it because they're so confidently going to seven, they don't even have to think about it. Is that a factor for you? It's all part of the mind games. Exactly. It's all part of the mind games. And yes, it, do, it does get me. It does get me, but I, I, you do have to be cognizant that, you know, at the end of the day, you're playing against another player. Mm-hmm. I love that. I do not care. I, I do not you care. You don't care. In fact, in fact, I will go into bidding. Like, I'll, I'll take a minute, think about my, my bid before I go in, and then I'll be that person who's like, I'm just gonna pause here for 20 seconds for no reason. Make you think I'm sweating, sweating the next the next bid. <laughs> All right, three, fine, but I'm gonna go to seven. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's also the the things bef- more than the snap bids is the long, long pauses pause. between mm-hmm. bids. That's what really gets me a lot more. Yeah, the long pauses get people. They do. They yeah. Really do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the jump, the jump scare is like couldn't care less about your jump scare like i've already got my number nine then the jump scare is not gonna not gonna impact me but i do i do think about where i want to end up and if i should skip a number to more favorably approach my final bid Um, Mm -hmm. i mean if i want to be on an odd or an even for example um though I, i often worry about whether that's giving away too much information but but you know what can you do what can you do so I think it's also it's also a mind game, real mind game of like if if my numbers around five, six, seven, mm-hmm. it's a real mind game of like where do I need to go for them to either overshoot where I want to take it or get me just ahead of where I want it. Yeah, 
So that's also this a, is the beauty of, of adaptive is that like if your max is seven and you know you're going first, you don't want to gamble at going to six to give them a chance to get it at seven. Like if if you're mm-hmm. like confident that you can win with seven going first, you're going to skip six a lot. And so this is definitely part of the bidding strategy. You have to think about that. Um, there's one thing I want to touch on in the bid ranges again before um, I would really love to talk about sets and some of the sets we have on the sets. Um, there is a direct relationship with the average SAS delta and the game three bid ranges. Um, we see that if uh, the SAS delta is around four, um, those more often than not resulted in a game three bid range of zero to three. And the number goes up as the SAS delta goes up. So um, pretty much expected. I think it's worth noting though, that like this is what we would expect. The higher the SAS delta, the higher the bid range we can see in game three. Yeah. Which is interesting. I mean, it's it's sort of interesting to have this data piece at odds with what we saw earlier in SAS deltas in two O's and two ones being so close. Yeah. Sort of I think it's an interesting piece of like obviously SAS isn't necessarily what's getting us to a two one. Or I mean it's not obvious. That data seems to suggest that SAS isn't what's isn't what's getting us to, to two O or two one specifically. And yet the average SAS delta in a game three, you know, does sort of suggest a valuation of deck strength in comparison. Yeah, this might say more about the players than it does about the actual yeah. deck disparity, the strength disparity. Yeah, absolutely. And also, and you know, I think um, because it's some of those things too, because the number of counts for game three bid ranges is small. And when there is like a 10... Because SAS is a good corollary for deck strength. I think everyone in the community agrees with that. It's it's often a good indicator. And so when people are playing it in adaptive, um, I think there's often chances for the decks to be pretty good and like to sort of match sort of the SAS evaluation. And then we can sort of see the reflected in when we do see a large disparity, you know, both players are evaluating the decks somewhat reasonably. But again, you know, the 10 to 12 range having an average SAS delta of 10.0, that's, you know, that's, we saw that it was a 33% win rate. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's not a good win rate. It's not a good win rate. Like, I mean, even if it's, even if it's not like super statistically relevant, because it's only nine games, like still 33%, I think is enough to say like, hey, these decks are probably, these decks are being overbid on. I wonder if, uh, we don't have this data. We can't have this, but I wonder how many, how many times people are looking at SAS when they, when they, bid up to like 10 or 12 and they end up losing like that's one of the reasons i just don't want to look at it i don't want to think to myself like man this is an 83 versus a 72 obviously the 83 is better like i don't even want to think about that i don't even want my brain to i don't want my brain to nudge me higher than i think it should just based on my experience in the two games and knowledge of the decks yeah so which i i think is um i know you know as you mentioned a little bit earlier but like First two games are not at all meaningless 98% of the time because even just getting a feel for how the matchup plays twice, sort of in two two separate hands, because I, I think it's also really important in the second game to see how your opponent is handling your own deck. For sure. Because if you're going into game three and saying like, man, I don't think my opponent's handling my deck well, like I think you're even more comfortable going maybe giving it for lower chains. And then there's going to be the players like J2 who are intentionally sandbagging game two. Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of there's lots of things going on there, but for sure. Sneaky. 
just conceding. You just hit concede. <laughs> yeah, I only do that when I lose game one and don't want to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the work, the work, the work meeting is coming up. I need to finish it. Like, uh, okay, kids are waking up soon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah. So we we actually are we're going over a lot of stuff, spending a lot of time in this tonight. I do want to move on if we can to look at the set data that we have. Uh, and JT, you'd put together some some quick numbers on the cross set encounters, how often certain sets played against other ones, how often uh, they they won against them. And so we have some numbers on that that I, I would really love to look at. Um, in all, we have, I think, uh, 143 games that we're looking at. And if we look at uh, win percentage across set, uh, we see that was not surprising to any of us that Coda has the lowest win percentage in adaptive of any set it was around 39 percent um so you bring coda in season seven or eight you have about a 39 percent chance of coming away with the win either 2-0 or 2-1 yeah i mean i which i i think we all expected that yeah, yeah go I, ahead i we're all thinking the same thing. yeah i was gonna say yeah and i i don't know if you mentioned in the in the dc episode that you unfortunately were not there for a quick draw but i think coda is just a set that i think it's not tricky there's not a lot of complicated things going on it's a lot of like counting board counting hand counting amber pips and sort of pretty straightforward play and i think it's just too easy to evaluate properly in an adaptive match not tonight is screaming and throwing her throwing a brick at her her <laughs> listening device at the moment i know not tonight um thinks differently of coda and she does have some coda decks that are not that straightforward and they kind of fly in my opinion of of what coda really is kind of like someone what you described that's how i feel about coda um but there are definitely coda decks out there that are more difficult than that i think in particular the ones with the low efficiency where you have mm -hmm. to make the decisions to hold cards more often uh understand which ones are most important if you need to hold your tmtp or if you can afford to just play it for the pip things like that like there are some complexities in coda but i think overall we're seeing 39 percent win rate for coda to me is not surprising because not every coda deck is like that but there are some exceptions there's exceptions to every rule and for sure i know um karen brown has a coda deck that they went undefeated in newton with or tesla they went undefeated into it in like in, te in tesla tournament with and they've also topped they also top coded kagi last season or two last season with that same deck and it's just it absolutely does exactly that it has a lot of complicated things going on and a lot of decision points irreversible decision points but I think in general, Coda just is not it for adaptive. Yeah, in general, the data backs it up too. Um, but there are only 14, uh, sorry, 36 Coda games. Um, and JT, you were putting these numbers together for us. It was um, 33 of them were out of set. So, and then there were three games between two Coda decks. So... Um, is that, do I have that right? You got it right. You got it right. Um, so that you know, that's you know, a decent number. It's the lowest of any set, though. Um, so people are not really bringing Coda, uh, and when they do, they're not winning as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The the DT best set crew is in full force. <laughs> <laughs> it always is. Can't escape it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Carl, Carl has egg on his face at the, right now. I don't know. Yeah. 
Although I, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't say anything because I did not bring any any coda to. Actually, my my previous, as I was mentioned before, previous go to was a coda deck, but uh, is not a great counterpoint because it was a coda deck because it uh, is fairly straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. Uh, I was banking on knowing its chain temperament. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and its straightforwardness. Mm-hmm. So the surprise here in the cross set data to me, I don't know about you guys, was that Worlds Collide actually has the highest win percentage of any deck uh, or of any set in Kagi 7 and 8. 65% uh, win percentage out of set for Worlds Collide. Pretty high. Yeah. I, I So it, it's interesting to note that um, it is the highest conversion rate, so it wins the most, while also being the second lowest presence. It has a presence rate of about seventeen percent, hmm. and has a conversion rate of of sixty five percent. So very impressive. Whereas Coda is a is a is a presence of thirteen percent. Interesting. With and, you know, by far the lowest win rate. And also the only set that shows a a positive conversion against each other set. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that, I think uh, you nail on the head there. I think Worlds Collide being. Apparently, a very good adaptive set is very surprising yeah, to me. Me as well. <laughs> um, the second lowest. Look, uh, we just got to go there, Murph. Like you and I, mm-hmm. uh, we're on the same page about DT. Yeah. We are. But uh, DT is looks like fifty percent. Uh, sorry, no, forty-seven percent out of set. Um, the numbers kind of uh, they get a little weird if you look at like inset win percentage because obviously it's going to be fifty percent. Um, so forty-seven percent is where DT lands as far as its win percentage out of set, um, which is the second lowest right after Coda, and that's very yeah. surprising to me. Mm-hmm. I've, I'm, and you know, I'm a staunch I... believer in in DT for adaptive. I'm never, I do do not see a future in the next six months where I play a non-DT deck in Kagi. Yeah, me either. So, so on the presence rate train versus conversion rate, um, DT is uh, at eighteen point three percent of the field across Kagi eight point zero and seven point zero. Eighteen point seven, but we'll go with that. Eighteen point seven. All right, eighteen point seven. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, eighteen point seven. So still, I mean, like it's it's. I'm surprised it's lower. I'm I'm. I guess I'm both surprised. And not surprised, it's kind of third lowest of those, or I guess third highest too. I guess you could right say right in the middle, right in the middle, right in the middle. Um, yes. But I'm also not that. I'm, I'm kind of surprised. Cause I do think, and I stand by the fact that I think DT is a great adaptive set. Absolutely. I'm with you, Quick Draw. Yeah. Like I'm not. I'm pretty much the only sets I'm playing in adaptive or AOA or DT. Um, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely surprising. Yeah. Oh man, can't argue with the numbers though. When it was Coda, it's like, yep, worst one ever. And now, aha, uh-huh, uh-huh, data doubters. I mean, <laughs> see, the, the best thing about data analysis is that, see, the data is just hard numbers. But what you do with it, that's up to us. We're the scientists. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and it's, the funny thing, too, is uh, we have a pretty sizable portion of the DT representation, <laughs> at least from Kagi. Uh, maybe that's not fair. Maybe that's not fair. How many? How many? times did we say it showed up 50 it looks like 55 55 and that mm-hmm. so that's 55 different uh matches sorry 55 different 55. dt decks appearing in matches right yes and of those 55 yeah, yeah. i think i am 12 because i think i've played it every single game in the last two seasons 
Okay. So yeah, I think I am also. Uh, I'd be eleven. I I could be misremembering one or two maybe, but the the other thing to me is that I mean this is going to sound arrogant. I, I'm going to toot my own horn. I I've only missed one Kagi top cut, and I've made the last two. This one by the skin of my teeth with tiebreakers, but um, I'm doing well with DT. So why would I change? Right, like. The data might say something, but like my personal experience is there's some success with that. And so I'm not going to change what I'm doing. Um, and I've played a lot of different DT decks the last two seasons. So um, it seems good to me. I, I'm not going to be swayed by data from the overall group in the league. Yeah, I mean, I am not going to go out, run out and find the Worlds Collide adaptive deck. I've also had a lot of success with DT. And uh, I bubbled last season. This season, I, w I, w I went undefeated with Dark Tidings, and I'm going to be sticking with that. Nice. My my most successful Kagi deck was Worlds Collide, interestingly enough. I haven't played it. been playing it a bit, but interesting. 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 Uh, there's um, another player as well who's made many, many a Kagi top cut who is has a signature adaptive deck being Worlds Collide, which has been featured in many uh, adaptive uh, feature match. Yeah, you're probably thinking of uh, Algernon. Algernon. That is correct. That's what I'm thinking too. Yep. Oh. Yep. Algernon with their Worlds Collide. Um, I think it's Star Alliance Logos Dis. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that thing is a great adaptive Agreed. deck. Yeah. And it's 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 yeah it's a great adaptive deck and it it's classic Worlds Collide too which I think is beautiful. Yeah. No see. Who needs it? Who needs it? Big board. Definitely. Uh, runaway board state with Star Alliance. Um, the one other thing to point out here, um, the most popular set among uh, any of them that people were bringing, regardless of win or lose, is Mass Mutation. I think people just like Mass Mutation. Um, it was a very, you know, widely loved set when it came out for the power level, but apparently also for adaptive. Twenty six percent of people bringing Mass Mutation is the highest of any set. So. I, which I, you know, I think it's really good to see that it's not so one-dimensional as like, oh, forty percent of the field is MM. Yeah, it's not skewed that much. It's um, slightly higher than AOA. Yeah, and I think the fact that I mean, code is obviously the lowest at thirteen point something, thirteen point three. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's much better. Like even thirteen point three isn't that low. Like it's not like it's five percent, five percent of the field. It's still like a sizable chunk. So I think it's just nice to see that people are you know bringing a variety of sets yeah. i would really i would i would not like to see a a season where it's like super dominated by two sets well next season might be a lot of woe just because people are interested in playing well yes i kind of sort of expect that if it's legal yeah because why not i mean like hey especially like i'm gonna be playing my my personalized deck in adaptive your personalized or your uh your savior deck no my personalized your deck. savior deck is some spicy stuff yeah that savior deck is very spicy but no i'm playing i'm playing murph fudgenator review off and bog in adaptive if i can because why that's not pretty cool it's a huge it's cool yeah I, i'm I, that's just cool yeah even if like i have some dt decks that i, I think are better choices just because it's fun i have a uh woe deck that i could consider for adaptive but i i want to play like at least another you know 25 30 games with it before i settle on it i'm I'm not i am not a fan of woe for adaptive i think it is bad news i'm just 
PSA, I do not think you should play Woe in Adaptive. I think there's more variance in Adaptive, or sorry, in uh, in Woe than there is in other sets. And I believe that players should go with, you know, previous sets that do not have tokens taking away a quarter of the cards in your deck each cycle. That um, that's that's all I'm going to say on that for now. I think I think Woe is a very bad adaptive set. Period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'll find out. You know, I think it'll be really interesting to see the set break down next at the end of next mm-hmm. season. But yeah, I'm I'm in the similar boat. Quick draw. Cool. Well, uh, well, either way, it's very nice to see this pleasing uh, this pleasing pie chart that shows mm, seemingly equal wedges across all the sets. Feels like a nicely balanced uh, distribution at least in terms of set preference by player. And, you know, we're also seeing uh, what seems like a really nice, like, sweet spot for uh, deck strength. So that's cool, too. So, I mean, for all, all intents and purposes, it's kind of a, you know, nice wide open uh, wide open field where you get to play some decks that are not uh, ones that you're, you're bringing out to the heavy hitter Archon stuff, which is awesome. Agreed. Which is yeah. awesome. I th- yeah, I think the data is very reassuring of sort of the idea and theory crafting we've gone through previously of, you know, bringing, you know, not Archon Solo level decks is the preference. And I, there cool. is, is at least is at least like a little bit is a little favored. Yeah, I believe there's one more chart we have with some pretty important statistical information <laughs> that we want to show. Um, it's slightly down. This is the most important further. one. Yeah, yeah this is. This is the most telling one to me, I thought. This is irrefutable. <laughs> JT, do you want to go over this one for us? Uh, I guess for the folks on audio only, uh, the chart is titled Best Set, and it is a, is a pie, gra- pie chart, pie graph here. Um, it is uh, all blue, a field of blue, a field of beautiful blue with the uh, legend of DT, or that blue, that blue color. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you can't argue with this stat. I mean, this is um, this is a perfectly statistically significant amount um and it's yeah. it's right here in this in this pie chart it's irrefutable mm-hmm. yeah and i think a, a real caveat should be noted as well on some of the dt and the on the set and the set by set data because for you know really in the dt ones whoever's playing dt is winning anyways mm-hmm and you know the only the only way because the only way for both players to win in Keyforge is to for both of them to be playing DT. So I think it really really is important that the, to note that that win percentage has not been taken to, into account in the set by set breakdown. Yeah. Well, as a as a person who loves negative play experience decks myself, I uh, I know quick draw has a few in the DT camp <laughs> that are right up my alley that could test your theory. <laughs> which which do, I have DT decks that are negative play experiences. Uh, I think there are plenty of folks who would call Whirlpool negative play experience and Evil Chapman, certainly. I don't know what you're talking about. It sounds like a very, very positive playing experience. Um, <laughs> are we going to ask Lesto? Yeah. Lesto had, he and I had a fantastic time in our three and a half hour Kagi match from season seven. So uh, I think I think they would agree that that was not a negative playing experience. That was possibly the best Keyforge experience of our lives. When Murph, you went out and you were ice fishing for a few hours up in Canada, came back and we were still in game one, right? That's right. I had enough time to build the hut, drill the hole, catch a fish, clean it, come back, yeah. make dinner, and the, the game was still yeah. going. Uh, very proud to say that that was a 44-turn game. That is that is wow. a true story. That's just one of the games. There's three. <laughs> that was just one of them. That's correct. 
<laughs> yeah. Who does not like that? Well, if if you like Keyforge, you obviously like forty four turn Keyforge games. Otherwise, you don't like Keyforge. That's right. The more the more Keyforge, the better. Away from the from the future season, <laughs> scaring them. Yeah, just just put your time zone as something different so you can dodge quick draw. <laughs> 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 jokes on you though yeah. i don't care which time zone i'm playing in that's just right quick draw is actually a wild card am i really hard off. do most people choose their own you time are, zone yeah. uh most uh the most people click if necessary uh, i don't i think i sometimes do if necessary i don't it probably just depends on my mood for the day yeah i also i mean i'm also aware of the players who are able to be a bit more flexible with their time zones just like being around the community and playing a little playing in a lot of leagues so i try and respect players that i'm aware of that have either less time restrictions more time restrictions or time preferences uh, can you add a, a fourth so. option to the time zone preference just to say jt russell's time zone i can <laughs> yeah i can yeah i'm uh, yeah yeah i can we can about get all get all uh get all the haters into that group <laughs> nice nice uh, i'll something to look forward to for season uh nine nine point oh eight point oh ten point yeah but we'll see oofa doofa 9.0 i guess yeah yeah, right, nine point three is the Woe League, so don't miss that one. Uh, yeah, yeah, I uh, wouldn't wouldn't miss that one unless I get tokenized. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm getting tokenized for that one for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're getting tokenized. You're getting tokenized. Well, cool. Well, uh, we have gone a bit long. Why don't we why don't we wrap things up unless there is really really urgent points? Oh so, man, no sponsors today. Oh, we do have a sponsor. Well, we have oh, we sponsor. have a sponsor. We do. Okay, wonderful. I was afraid. I was afraid because of my last appearance. Um, so you'd get your sponsor rights taken away for this one. So I'm I'm glad I didn't uh, cost you some of the monetization. Yeah, I mean the the Twitch folks reached out because uh, they were like, yeah, you're not supposed to have sponsors um, when you're streaming. But uh, I know we we worked it out. It's okay. We we have okay, we good. have special dispensation from the Twitch gods. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, so. Uh, what a great segue. This this episode of Bottom Beaker was sponsored by Jar Goggles Goggles. Uh, Jar Goggles Goggles, where style meets sight. Uh, perfect glasses and contacts that sparkle and shine day and night. You'll find clear vision and flair in every pair. Thank you very much, uh, Jar Goggles Goggles. Uh, yeah, big supporters of the show. Glad we got them in uh, today for the sponsorship. Do you all say, oh, okay, quick question. Do you all say Jar Goggle or Jar Goggle? Jar Goggle. Jar Goggle. Yeah. Okay. I usually say jar goggle too, but you know, I figured uh, when I talked to the rep on the phone, they were they were jar goggle jar goggling, so I, I threw that in there just to kind of you know. Yeah, you got a piece of sponsors. Yeah, I mean, hey. Yeah. Who are we to say that they're wrong? Yeah. Their product. Who are we? To, it's not my. It's not my name. No, 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 it's not my name either. So yeah, check check out uh, jar goggles or jar goggles goggles, folks. Uh, and uh, and where can you find us? Well, uh, we are streaming. Bottom Beaker and recording live every Tuesday night at 9.30 Eastern right here at twitch.tv slash sloppy lab work. If you'd like to catch uh, recordings of our past shows, past shows, you can head on over to youtube.com, search for at sloppy lab work there, and uh, you'll see our recordings. And for the very best content, uh, uh, 34, uh, no, no, 57 times distilled and scraped from the bottom of the beaker, search for that very phrase in your podcatcher of choice, and you'll... Uh, See us there with a whole bunch of adaptive stats. Ready to nerd out with you. Uh, thanks very much to our special guest, uh, Murph Budgenator. Murph, uh, any parting words? Let us know where folks can find you on the internets and uh, and check out your stuff. 
Yeah, I am Murph Fudgenator, as I am on my media channels. You can find me on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash at Fudgenator117, or you can find me on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash Fudgenator. And yeah, that's that's it. That's where I am. You can find me. I go live. I stream all my league games. My focus is on competitive league gameplay and highlighting those. And uh, occasionally I I hop on a podcast like this and I run Kagi, the Adaptive Best of Three League. Please join because that is the best league in the world. Out of the Sanctimonious Discord. That is right. Out of the Sanctimonious Discord. Thank you, Quickdraw. Awesome. Well, Murph Fudgenator, whose uh, name handle is an obvious reference to uh, his logo. So thank you very much, Murph Fudgenator. And uh, <laughs> quick try, any final words for the folks getting off at the last audio stop? Special thanks to Murph for running Kagi, for sharing this data with us, joining us tonight, uh, and everyone else, stay sloppy.